This is another one of our favorite episodes. Everyone is enjoying their summer break and so is Friends Like Us, but instead of leaving you without an episode, I thought it'd be nice to celebrate another one of our favorite episodes of 2023. It's all about black artist representation in galleries, museums, how it's changing, and the importance of funding for a new generation of talent. It's a great episode that I actually learned a lot from. And if you didn't listen to it, here's your chance to hear it and share it with others. Enjoy your summer. Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, help me welcome a new friend to the show. The guests just keep getting better and better, and this is no exception. Help me welcome Stephanie Johnson Cunningham. Stephanie is a museum professional with over 15 years experience in the field. She has worked at the New York Historical Society, Brooklyn Museum, 9-11 Museum and Memorial, and African American Museum in Philadelphia. Stephanie received the Americans for the Arts 2019 American Express Emerging Leader Award for her work. She also hosted and produced On Display, a show for WNET's All Arts. Stephanie is co-founder and director of Museum Hue. She built the first online directory and mapping of museums centering Black, Indigenous, and other people of color across the United States. She is currently working on a larger cultural mapping project specific to New York City with support from New York City's Department of Cultural Affairs. Listen to this episode. Listen to it all the way to the end and find out how you can help Stephanie with her very important research and support Museum Hue. Help me welcome our young star, Noye Brown-West. She is a New York-based Nigerian-American comedian and writer. She's been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as a comic to watch, and we agree. She's been seen in the New York Comedy Festival. Noye has also been seen in her acting debut in The Sympathy Call, available on all platforms. Follow Noye. See if she's performing in a town near you. May 22nd. Yes, that's right. May 22nd, I will be performing at the Comedy Cellar's Fat Black Bar. That's right. May 22nd. Go to the website ComedyCellar.com and get your tickets. I want to thank all of our listeners and friends like us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts subscribe make sure you turn on the auto download function for friends like us on apple Podcasts. you can email us at friends like us podcast at gmail our instagram is friends like us podcast and twitter is friends like us 10 become more than a friend leave us a tip or a donation by going to our patreon page go to patreon backslash friends like us shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going and now for our golden friends you have the option to watch our recordings live go to patreon backslash friends like us and be golden merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks tank tops they're all available just go to my website marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick my wacky friend dave juskow we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to that comedy show on the 22nd of may friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands wear a mask still if you want to how about you just be kind and 
Lives Matter. I'm with the young star, Noye Brown West. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephanie Johnson, Cunningham. Hi there. Yes, <laughs> new friend to the show. Yeah. We are so excited and honored to have you, Stephanie. Stephanie Johnson Cunningham. She also has a dash. No, yeah. Oh, I know. I saw <laughs> Johnson dash Cunningham to our show. She is amazing. Can you, you know, and I, and I have to say this before, it's so important to have you because like I said, there is a strong attempt to erase our history. There's a strong attempt to not educate people about the past. And that's why I feel like it is just, it's so important to have you as a guest and it's so, so important to have you do what you do. Like you are essential. Mm-hmm. You know, during the pandemic, we talked about essential workers. You are essential. So can you, instead of me reading your bio, can you tell our listeners and viewers what you do? Sure, absolutely. I'll try to sum it up, put a bow on it. Um, But I'm the executive director of an organization that I co-founded in 2015 named Museum Hue. And what we primarily have been working on over the past few years is research looking at Black and people of color um, art spaces and looking at the inequitable practices um, of the arts and cultural landscape. And like you said, there's a lot of attempts to erase our history if we want to talk specifically about Black arts and culture, whether it be, you know, gentrification or, you know, inequitable mortgages for homes. If we want to talk about even um, inequitable funding, city funding that is distributed to throughout the city for arts and culture. If you look specifically at Black organizations, you'll see that there is a huge inequity with taxpayer dollars. Um, and that is a real issue. And so that's what Museum He works to do to be an intermediary um, addressing these issues um, and speaking very boldly about the need um, for the preservation of these spaces. And I'd say the catalyst for this work happened maybe right before the pandemic in 2019, seeing the near closure of Weeksville, a heritage center, which is in Brooklyn. And it is in a community neighboring mine in Crown Heights. And it was a large effort made by a Black woman, Joan Maynard, in saving this historic space. And to see it nearly closed because the organization had been operating in red for so long and the city wasn't equitably funding it, um, really, you know, uh, hit a light bulb in my mind. Like this, this must be an issue that's happening all across the city. You know, we knew much of that information anecdotally, but really wanted to present data and research to show uh, the inequitable practices and garnering greater support and funding um, for Black arts and culture and people of color um, arts and culture as well. Amazing. Amazing. So, so So did it close or... It did not. It, it did not. It did not. Thankfully, uh, oh, because thank of God. the bold efforts of the then executive director and um, elected officials rallied behind the organization and it was saved. Uh, people from all across the country donated, um, also globally as well donated. And it also became a part of the cultural institution group, which is primarily uh, 33 or 34 arts organizations that get guaranteed funding from the city every year. 
majority of those are predominantly white institutions, um, and that has been changing to include, um, there's two Black arts organizations a part of it, and one, I think, Latinx um, organization that's a part of it as well. So there are efforts to change who gets um, that funding, but right now it is going to predominantly white institutions, largely. So are, so are my, my, so, you know, tax season, we just passed like last week's tax. I paid a lot in taxes in Harlem. And I recently mm-hmm. joined a community every now and then I join the community board zoom meetings or mm-hmm. there's a Harlem coalition here and they had yeah. someone presenting how a lot of our tax dollars in Harlem is much more than some of the tax dollars that some of these corporations spend on their buildings in Manhattan. So like how much of the tax dollars in Harlem are going to, let's say, the museum in Harlem? Right. Studio Museum in Harlem or even the Schomburg in Harlem. Um, They're getting some of that funding. I know Studio Museum is the other Black institution that is a part of the CIG group, but also the tax funding that gets distributed across the CIGs, we also know are not uh, equitable either. So even though Weeksville and Studio, two Black organizations who are part of it, they aren't getting funded as much as the, I guess, legacy CIGs per se. Um, And then Schomburg is not necessarily a part of the CIG, but I know that they also get uh, city funding as well because they are a part of... um, uh, the library system, but also, again, the Schomburg needs more funding. Um, the Schomburg can definitely utilize additional funding for um, the work that, they, that they've been doing for many years. What we know, too, is that a large portion before these institutions, the Black and Latinx institution was added, the CIGs used to get 87% of the city's funding for arts and culture. So a small amount would trickle down to other institutions, white, black, brown institutions. But the issue here at hand is that a large segment is guaranteed of that arts funding to the CIG organizations, whereas most of the arts funding that the organizations get outside of the CIG bubble is very small. And the research that we've done so far, looking at black and brown organizations specifically, majority of them, uh, uh, operation budgets are less than a million dollars, whereas the majority of the CIGs are like multi-million dollar so um, organizations because it's just the way that the city budget operates. I mean, we see that these organizations are beneficial. Um, of course, many of them bring in tourism and, you know, things like that, which is really incredibly important for the city. But also these uh, other organizations, community organizations are also great for providing tourism as well, one, but also uh, providing services for the community. So Weeksville for a while, for example, had a farmer's market because they're located in a food desert, essentially, um, where people don't have access to good, fresh food. And so on the weekends during the warmer months, and I think maybe the weekdays too, they had fresh food. Some of these um, organizations also offer um, ESL classes for people who, you know, uh, uh, English isn't their first language. You know, there's different services that are beneficial to the city 
that are offered by small community art spaces too, which are largely black and brown, located in black and brown communities. But also these organizations provide opportunities. We see that within the Comptroller's report that arts and culture provide over 400,000 jobs. And so that's not just the CIGs, that's also smaller uh, arts organizations as well. So they're employing people, they're providing opportunities for folks, um, which we know also affects the economics of our communities, um, also uh, may affect uh, the violence that happens within communities because people have a a safe haven, a place um, as well. So it is, I think the way that we see arts organizations or define arts organizations outside of the CIG bubble has to shift. Um, and, and when, and, and, you know, what it really boils down to when you say, you know, why, and I told you all those things, why? One thing that I didn't say, which is critical, is it is a part of systemic racism. That is really the bulk of it. We can say this and that, but also it is a historical um, issue within the city of New York. And I think that's one thing that people have to understand because when people think about New York City, place where I was born and raised here in Brooklyn, think about this like vibrant, diverse uh, neighborhoods, and it is, but this city is also affected by white supremacy and racism as well. Absolutely. Because when I think about like even the the facts of Harlem, right? Um, when people know about redlining, when people have their their facts in order or they have their history, they then get involved in changing it and and also making it like I had no idea of the amount of displacement in Harlem had to do with a lot of what Giuliani did. You know, like when people talk about cleaning up Times Square, they go, Giuliani cleaned up Times Square. But what else did Giuliani do to Harlem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, you know, like I live in Harlem, but I've been to the museum maybe all of one time, right? So how do you get to a point where you make this like a, you know, a tip of the tongue conversation where you go, have you been like people go, have you been to Amy Ruth's or have you been to Sylvia's or have you been to, you know, um, what's another place? Uh there's so many places, you know, like landmarks in Harlem. How do you get people to just be like, oh, I'm going to the studio museum? Yeah, I guess I guess in my world, so many people are like, I'm going to the studio museum. But obviously I work in, in museums and arts and culture. But for the general public, to your point, it needs to be more visible. I think even though you may not hear people say like, uh, the studio museum as an arts and cultural kind of recreational thing that that people do, but you'll hear people, you know, talk about like things like um, maybe Broadway or yeah. you know even the Met. And I think, and again, growing up in the city, those things were introduced to me from a very young age. So when I was in elementary school, I learned about Broadway and, and Met and all these amazing places. What I didn't learn about was like the studio museum in Harlem and the Schomburg. And I went to a majority black school. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it speaks also to the educational system. And then when you go on the trains and such, who do you see ads for? For the Met, for Broadway, for MoMA, for these bigger moneyed institutions. So it is about creating a cultural memory for folks 
for people to associate themselves with visiting arts and cultural institutions like Studio Museum in Harlem and others. And these institutions weren't just built just for only like Black people to visit or Latinx people to visit, like for everyone. So when I do go to the Studio Museum in Harlem, it's really sometimes amazing to see people from all walks of life in there. Um, I went one time and there was like a a class of like German students, everyone speaking German, which is really interesting and really amazing as well. And then another, another time I went and it was uh, a school of local kids uh, from studio, um, visiting studio museum, but they were from Harlem um, as well. Um, so I think it is just about the continuous branding of the institution, but also the support of the city um, for their marketing and advertising uh, budget as well. And that's one thing that's great about, um, you know, the funding that a lot of the larger organizations get is they get funding specifically for like marketing and such, because, you know, again, they're seen as bringing in tourism and, you know, more people are invested in these spaces. And so they're seen as cultural authorities within the the city. And so more people are drawn to those spaces for that reason. But there is, I think, a large segment of, of folks who are really interested in the Schomburg and studio and want to also see them continue to grow and to provide, you know, new opportunities um, for the communities as well as the general public. This is something I'm curious during George Floyd, and the lockdown, I felt like white people probably, you can correct me if I'm wrong, probably wanted to fund more. Did you feel like there was more funding during that time and now it's slowing, like they're trickled, they're, like their their time is up where they they cared. They were like, oh my God, this is horrible. We can't look away. And now they're looking away and the money's not coming back. Yeah, that is a huge issue. And that's, that's an issue with, kind of even for the nonprofit industry in general, that there's, you know, some like buzzwords happening, like diversity and this, and then they can jump to, you know, from that to like gun violence and, you know, they're kind of like funding um, or giving streams can differentiate year after year based on like what's happening. So that is a huge issue. But I think that's why for Museum Hue, we're asking for designated funding of $100 million for, you know, black and brown arts organizations so that there is ongoing funding for these entities. The same way that within the city's budget, there is funding for the CIGs for many, many years. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that that there needs to be a line item within the budget from the city and state to say, here's funding specifically along racial lines because of the inequitable practices that we see. And that's why I think that we can't just depend on just private foundations. Um, And private foundations, I think, have also been doing a really great job in in thinking critically about racial equity very specifically. Uh, The leadership in a lot of private foundations have shifted as well to people who are really serious about this and not it just being buzzy and you know, um, every once in a while they touch on the issue. So I think it just has to be a systemic change within the the, the city's funding. I, New York City has a billion dollar budget. There is no way that we can't carve out some funds for arts and culture um, 
not even 1% of the budget is going to arts and culture yeah. alone. So, so that is a, that's a huge issue. So what I've found is that knowing, you know, and engaging elected officials um, and government officials around this issue is really important. And, and in doing so myself, I learned that again, the big wigs, they have their consistent lobbyists who are in these elected officials, government officials, faces and offices, um, advocating for these funds, making sure that these funds are designated to predominantly white institutions. They have that kind of mammoth money to do that. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to navigate that has been really important, I think, for me. Wow. Learning how to navigate politics, basically. At the graduate school and undergrad level, I was working on things like this in, um, at UMass, at UMass Dartmouth. And I was working for the mayor of New Bedford in the Historic Preservation Department. And the history of that area is very interesting because they knocked down all of these very historical black and brown sites to build a highway. Even they went as far as to knock down one of the Frederick Douglass houses in favor of the white historic district, which is where these offices were. And we were told that um, we were going to interview people who have lived in New Bedford for their entire lives and their families have lived there their entire lives and so on and so forth to figure out what industries they could bring into the city to help people who were um, who were lower income because there was no industry left. New Bedford used to have a booming industry 100 years ago and they no longer do. And, or they didn't at the time. And one of the businesses that wanted to come in was I think Walmart, or it was either Walmart or Amazon, I forget. It was, I think it was Walmart because of the time period. And they wanted to build in a warehouse that used to be an old mill on the white historic side of town. And all of the POC residents of New Bedford, POC and also white, because a lot of them were Portuguese, which I consider white, but <laughs> but they had lived there for a long time. English wasn't their first language. Um, voted to have Walmart come in so there would be something, you know, some sort of business that they wouldn't have to drive really far to work at, uh, somewhere where their kids could work. And they used a lot of our research to vote that down. Um, the, the governor's office voted against it, even though it would have helped the people that they claimed to be helping. Because again, they didn't want a Walmart in a historic white building. So it's just, it's very interesting to see that this happens. And I mean, I knew it happened in New York too. I just feel like it probably happens all over America. It probably happens all over yeah. the North, North America all over Europe, wherever, but um, the racism is wild. (laughs) And how even in New York, where there's billions of dollars to spend, they still find a way to, um, you know, only fund the white history. Uh, New York governor proposes a 56% cut to state arts funding. So this is Governor Hochul, who I thought was, who, who showed her face in Harlem several times. New York, so New York Governor Kathy Hochul plans deep cuts to art fundings from her $227 billion state budget plan for the 2024 fiscal year. With her proposal, funding for the New York State Council on the Arts, um, NYSCA, would be cut by more than half. In analysis, 
from the governor's office explains the cuts by saying that arts funding was non-recurring during the pandemic anyway. But some state politicians are calling for a sustained funding boost, even as the worst impacts of COVID-19 recede. He is advocating for NYSCA funding to be boosted by $150 million which would put it in the same league as the biggest governmental arts funders in the United States, the National Endowment of the Arts in the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. So, Stephanie, how do, how do you react to that when you, when you hear these, these uh, conversations? And- yeah, well, let me say first that during the pandemic, the governor um, or the Department of New York State Council of the Arts was able to maybe double, if not triple, the amount of funding that they were offering for arts and culture, um, which had been helpful, okay. you know, for so many arts uh, institutions throughout the city and state. However, I think those fundings could have remained uh, for the benefit of the city and state. Um, But what we see here is that things are kind of going back to how things were instead of saying, how can we continuously support these industries that, again, are helping our communities, funding, um, the the funding would help them to provide jobs and all of those things that I had mentioned before. So I think it, again, boils down to the fact that there needs to be a, a better understanding, I think, of just how critical arts and culture is for the city in multitudes of way. What do you think of preservation? What do what you think of, about economics? Which What it really boils down to in the city is that, is this an economically viable industry? And yes, it is. We bring in significant amount of dollars for us to receive significant funding. Um, I would say too, these budget cuts are going to affect Black and brown arts organizations uh, the most. We're going to be hit the hardest because already the funding that the state and the city provides is less than most of the predominantly white institutions that they uh, fund. They also aren't transparent about the funding along racial lines. So they'll say like, we give, you know, 50% of our funding goes to organizations that uh, budgets are less than a million dollars. Yes, we know that that black and brown institutions make up a large percent of that, but that's not just only black and brown arts organizations as well. So we don't really understand um, how much the state is really giving out to arts organizations of color very specifically. Mm. But when we look at the numbers and when we speak to leaders of these organizations, they've either said they get either very little from the city and state or none at all. So there needs to be more transparency, especially now that the budget is being cut, it needs to be transparent and saying like, we're giving this organization, these organizations that, you know, represent black and brown communities very specifically so that we can see if there is a a continuation of this inequitable funding distribution. So how do, how does one help you to, because you can't do it all, Stephanie. (laughs) Yes. Like, how does one help, like this podcast is helping. Yeah. So yeah, like someone totally. lists, listening right now, like what can they do to help? Like as far as transparency, like yeah. I've always said, I feel like transparency is key with the mayor, with governor, yep. Yep. you know, 
What what can we do to help? That that's such a great question. So Museum Hue has a membership platform for folks to join. So we have an institutional membership where um, it is based on your institution's budget. Um, this institutional membership helps support our work. It could be as little as one hundred and fifty dollars to like eight hundred. Um, dollars annually to support our work. You get access to our resources and our research and such. Also individuals, it is a one-time fee as well of of $30 currently. So, you know, we ask for that support financially, but also, you know, we have press releases and such that we ask people to sign on our website. So if you go to museumhue.com and go to Hue Arts New York City and Hue Arts New York State, you can sign on to our our letter to the governor and our letter to the mayor about supporting uh, the work that, that we're doing in support of Black and Brown arts organizations. And I would say, too, how people can be helpful, too, is just to know that how arts and culture are, operate in New York City, everyone benefits from New York City arts and culture, right? I think People need to understand how critical New York City is in arts and culture from music to movies to um, visual art, how incredibly important it is. And, and even think personally how you've been touched by arts and culture in New York City and to really kind of, you know, get involved because of that as well, either financially or signing on to um, the letters to the mayor and governor, because I think that we are going to lose a critical industry, especially an industry uh, that will affect Black and brown folks uh, very specifically. And I think that people need to really take a look at like how beneficial uh, New York City arts and culture has been to them. If we think about hip-hop alone, right? Hip-hop is a billion-dollar industry today, international industry, but the Bronx, where it's known to have come from, is still among you know, the poorest congressional district in the country, right? We know much of the billion dollars that hip hop generates today doesn't go to black and brown communities, right? And we can blame the MCs. I know people like to say, oh, is such and such giving back to the community? Sure, they should be giving back to the communities, but there isn't a system where people are adding these benefits into the state budget to say, you know, hip hop is giving so much to the city. How do we support these communities that it comes from as well? Um, so I think it's a huge issue. I think if we think about historically how this city was so against hip hop in the 50 years ago when it was first started, um, Mayor Koch, for example, spent millions cleaning the trains, arresting graffiti artists, millions of the city's uh, funds were spent on trying to eradicate hip-hop culture, right? And so there was a huge effort then to remove hip-hop. And now we see, you know, of course, now the hip-hop museum is coming for the 50 years, and that's great. But we need to think about how the residuals of hip-hop can also be a part of the community as well. So I think it it is so complex this issue but again if people just you know take a step back to say new york city arts and culture has impacted me how can i support uh new york city arts and culture financially um and also with my voice um signing on to these letters i just have an idea (laughs) i was like listening to you and i was like why don't is there any like i don't know film doc series on 
people affected by Broadway, New York arts, like personal stories. Cause like, I know for me coming to New York was part of my father just bringing me here and seeing like the tap dance kid. I'll never forget that. Like that is why I'm in entertainment today. Like if you have someone like, let's say Marina Franklin, you know, comedian, <laughs> famous comedian, <laughs> <laughs> you know, talking about why she became a comedian and that it was affected by her once visit to New York City to watch Alonzo. It was a lot. Yeah. Alonzo Rivera? That- yeah. Play the tap dance kid and how that made me have an appreciation for the arts and want. I, I remember seeing it. I also saw Dreamgirls. I remember lifting from my seat and being like, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this in some way now. I'm not singing on Broadway, but, you know, (laughs) it changed my life forever. Totally. And I think that's such a great idea. We've been thinking about how to possibly do something like that, whether it be, you know, everyday people like you and I to, you know, celebs like Spike Lee or something to talk about because how he even came into the industry. So that's actually a really good idea. And I think that, you know, that would be a really great message that that people would be able to sign on to. So, so yeah, great idea. Yeah, it's fa- and family. Like my uncle, sh- I don't know about you, know you, you know my uncle Buzz, yeah. but he's like in L.A. But he introduced me to um, Ernie. Is it Ernie Barnes? Yeah, all of his art. You know the ones with the like the famous um, like they're in the juke juke joint and they're dancing. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know that one. It, the, on the I'm cover of the Camp Lowe's right. Uptown on a Saturday night. Yes, cover, yeah. yes. He introduced me to art in that way. I think it's so good to find out, like, from people, how did you get introduced to art? How did you, who took you to your first trip on a museum? Like, what were your, what, it, you know, like, music is nostalgic. Like, going to a museum is nostalgia, too. I remember my mom taking me to the museum and how it made me, I still remember those were some of my best moments with my mom, just yeah. going to the museum. Same, same with me. I went to the museum with family as a kid. But also, even if you don't go into arts and culture, how like the skills of the arts are also transferable too. I think people need to understand that like, you know, being able to, if you become an artist, visual artist, having the patience to paint or create you know, um, any kind of piece of of work, whether it be a comedic sketch, whatever it may be, I think those skills are transferable. And it also teaches you an appreciation um, for the arts, too. So some of us who fell in love with the arts probably became a part of the industry, but also just, you know, maybe we're doing banking or engineering, but still like have an appreciation for it. And I think that's where it boils down to. so, yeah, I think that people can really get behind uh, New York City arts and culture in a real way. And that's a great idea. I feel like that's most of the reason people move here, too, because there's really no other reason to be exactly. here than the exactly. arts. I mean, Marina and I know firsthand we're amazed on on a Monday night. There can be a show that we do that where there's 100 people and they're all tourists. Yeah. You know, it's just people come here for Broadway. They come here for comedy. They come Mm -hmm. here for arts, visual arts. Yep. Yep. Without Mm -hmm. that, New York is nothing. And it's it's wild. It's wild to cut funding. I know that over the pandemic, I received some of those art funds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because was it it through Create NYC? 
uh, I think one of them was I re- I okay, received okay. a few grants because Ooh. I was like completely out of work uh, during the oh, pandemic. As, I mean, as Marina was as well. So it's just that sustained a lot of artists, Broadway artists, visual artists. Um, and we're not out of the woods yet. A lot of exactly. Yeah. Because for, for a little bit, there was like, for me, at least there was a little bit of a, um, a price bump in things that we were doing, like online shows and, and things like that. And, you know, all of a sudden we were all making corporate money for those things. And then, but now that's gone, that's what that's gone away. And some of the clubs are even low balling us now. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say who, cause I like your money. Please keep giving it to me. But, <laughs> but but no, they're making they're making a lot of money, and they sh- could raise their prices. Yes, yeah, absolutely right. So I think I think it's it's why it's a horrible idea to cut funding for the arts in a city that only exists because of that, that exists in in modern times because of that. Exactly. So I don't know. So I do have this question for you. How many black curators are there? I know I, I saw something about just 4%. Is that correct? Yeah, of- 4 or 5%. Um, In New York or nationally? No, I think that number is national. Um, so I I don't know. So, so uh, an exact number of how many black curators exist, I don't know. How many black curators that get to work in black spaces? Now that's probably like five, maybe ten, like a small amount. And mm-hmm. that's the issue um, that I've had largely with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. That it's about having black and brown bodies be in white yeah. spaces without thinking critically about the sustainability of black and brown institutions. So a lot of the black curators that I know first got their nurturing and mentorship at black institutions like Studio Museum in Harlem and, and Weeksville and others um, to now be at, uh, you know, Whitney and LACMA out in LA um, and other institutions, which is, which is fine. People should be able to work wherever they want to, but they should be able to stay where the, wherever they want to as well. And so Black institutions are not able to pay um, as much as, as those other institutions mentioned. And I think that is a, a critical part of equity as well. I think instead of us talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, it's just like, let's stick to the equity part. Um, because that's really crucial. Um, the sustainability of our spaces are really crucial. Um, even when I visit some historically black colleges, I'm like, the, 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 the country really needs to invest in these spaces. If you look at like most, I didn't go to historically black college, but if you look at the success of a lot of black people historically and, and contemporarily in the U.S., it's because of historically black colleges, yes. right? And so that deserves an investment instead of us, you know, encouraging us to go everywhere else to also consider and to invest in those spaces as well. So I think that, you know, as we continue this fight for diversity, equity, and inclusion, because people should be able to be welcomed and work everywhere, as I mentioned, but black institutions need to be on equal footing as those organizations as well. And you'll see that, you know, they also hire, you know, non-Black folks sometimes too within different departments because they're able to hire people, um, more and more people as well. And so if we're all a part of a equal operating organization and arts ecosystem, you'll see that people will be able to 
you know, uh, explore different opportunities and different hiring um, opportunities for folks. So that's kind of where I am right now with Museum Hue. Um, We have a series called Building Hue Spaces, where we're looking specifically at uh, capital projects in supporting black and brown institutions, either to get a new space or sustain their own space. So we're actually having um, an event May 11th at Weeksville Heritage Center, where we're looking at Black communities built and sustained. So we're going to be talking about Weeksville, of course, and Black women building, not just on, you know, physical space, but also like building communities. So it's like a double entendre. Um, but also talking about the work that's being done in sustaining Black communities all across the city. So we'll be having folks from Harlem, so um, uh, the National Black Theater, Folks will be there because that's a legacy institution. Um, also, you know, folks from East New York, for example, there's Preserving East New York, uh, Penny for short, um, which is also a historically Black neighborhood and a lot of Black home ownership in that neighborhood, I think amongst the highest in the in the city. Um, and then also even Staten Island um, and also, you know, Flatbush, where I am in Brooklyn, where there's this uh, area called Little Caribbean. Nice. Oh, that's right. So, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, talking about how Black people are working really hard to uh, uh, designate physical spaces um, for us, as well as designated areas for us as well. And I think it's so important for us to understand our preservation and its importance Um for our communities and for the sustainability of our economics as well. May 11th? May 11th, yeah, all this, day, 9 a.m. Oh, that's to wonderful. No, yeah, we should check that out. What day is that? Oh, that's the day of my JFL call that. Mm. Is that, Ooh, what does um, that mean? Is that a weekend? Oh, just for May last, 11th. The Just for that's Last Festival. Thursday. Oh, Ooh, okay, okay. yes. Oh, wait, no, wait, hold on. I'm putting that down. My yeah, callback please. is on the 9th. Never mind. Okay, I was okay. The I wrong would, month. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should let's let's. I'm I gonna talk to you. you. I yeah, would love you to, to go to the. Yeah, I would love for you all to come. It's gonna be a really. It's gonna start off, kick off with the um, um, Everardo Jefferson, who's the New York City's commissioner of preservation and also the principal architect for Weeksville. So, um, you know, this black man who's been doing this work in the architectural field uh, for some time. I think we also have started thinking critically about how architecture obviously is also arts practice, but also how architecture needs to be thought about critically in the landscape of New York City, because as we know, real estate is king in this city. And so partnering with architects and, you know, figuring out how best to uh, build and sustain has also been a huge learning curve as well. Um, And to to find community within those spaces has been really cool too. So um, the folks from um, the Black Architects group is coming. Is uh, and, Will Nook yeah. DeBose, do you know him? Wh- who is Will? No, they call him Nook. No, I don't know Will DeBose, is. he's an architect in Brooklyn. I wonder no. if he's going to be a part of that. No, he he's won't black. be. He won't be, but please invite him or, or feel free I to will. Maybe that'll me. be our day. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't and land we'll have, that brother. We're gonna have breakfast and lunch. 
provided. Oh so yes, it could be a real date. Um, There's also and an architect of the houses and stuff, so it'll be real cute. There's a structural architect here in Harlem that Uncle Buzz introduced me to that I had. And I'm going to send her you her information once we're off this because we interviewed her um, during the pandemic, actually. And she okay. is, you know, very few like she's she's big deal. Like she mm. deals with highways and sh- trying to prevent structural racism yeah, in America. Yeah. Wow. So she went from and she's Chicago. In she's in Harlem. She did the she designed the Obama mu- uh, library. Oh, wow. And she's in Harlem and she would I, I'm going to definitely connect you to her. Please she would do. be amazing Please if she's do. not already a part of this. If you have no, not no, already no. connected, I nope. cannot for the life of me right now. Remember her name. Yeah. Just because, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm talking to you, but exactly. she would be amazing. Okay. And I, I think this is just incredible what you're doing. What mm-hmm. other um, projects now? I, I you know, I, I've seen like you have on your website, there mm-hmm. is a series that you did where you like, mm-hmm. like, for example, like, can you tell me real quick? Mm-hmm. I know this mm-hmm. is probably another show, mm-hmm. but the grave site that is down in lower Manhattan, right? You yeah. interviewed. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah. So that one is still in its kind of early stages, but we're looking at uh, Seneca Village uh, specifically um, that historical site, which is now Central Park. And thinking critically, I feel like more and more people are uh, knowing about Seneca Village, which was a largely Black community before uh, Central Park was built. But we're going to be creating curriculum around it specifically mm, nice. um, so that the general public um, as well as educators have access to it. Um, so that instead of like, you know, talking about it like, you know, Seneca Village, it was a neighborhood in Central Park, but we have more details and, and greater understanding and maybe use the, utilize that tool to take a trip to Seneca to Seneca Village uh, in Central Park itself, the area, and to kind of get a real uh, understanding of it. The players at hand, the people who uh, once occupied the space and its history. Um, and so that's kind of what we were, we're working on right now. Like I said, we're at the early stages of it. But we're looking forward to continuing this conversation around like black spaces and we're partnered um, for the May 11th event with our organization called Black Space that helps to teach people about like preservation and and such like and things like that um, uh, within black communities. So, yeah, it should be a really great um, event and conversation. Oh, that's great. Yes. I just um, I worked at. Um, I do stock photo modeling. That's a, another job I do. Very, very interesting for an architecture yes. firm. And one of the places, oh, nice. yeah. And one of the places mm-hmm. we just worked was the Jackie Robinson Museum. And okay. it was, it was such a beautiful day. We got nice. to go up to the offices that they have there too. And they have mm-hmm. amazing artwork up there. Um, yeah, the visited main, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so great. It's, it I love that place. Um, Gensler, yeah. that architecture firm, they worked on it. So we did the little, yeah. I don't know if you partner with them at all. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Jackie Robinson Museum, I went and, and visited before they 
they opened uh, officially to the public. And, you know, we've been in conversation with them about possibly partnering on some things as well. But yeah, that's a beautiful new space. I love that museum. Yes. Yeah. And then also there's a new museum coming to Harlem, actually. Uh, the Urban League is building a civil rights museum as oh, well. Nice. Oh, nice. But that is not going to be open until like 2024, 2025. Yeah. Now I'm looking at all these articles we put in, but you've pretty much covered everything so well. I mean, the only thing I would say is this one, uh, this article, Upstate New York's 13 Historic Theaters Lobby for State Funding. But these are, are these, these aren't of color, are they? I don't think so, no. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Which is great. They need funding. All arts need funding. Mm-hmm. But I think there also needs to be a recognition of the inequitable funding that's happened historically. So I am not against all of these organizations getting funding. I think, like I said, we all deserve 1% in the city's budget. And then, you know, discussions on how it'll be distributed equitably. But I think that, you know, that those organizations, as well as those that I'm advocating for, uh, we were able to, through our HEW Arts NYC research, identify over 400 arts organizations that are black and brown um, and that, you know, are POC. And so we just want to be able to have the city acknowledge that this, this city is still, um, you know, majority black and people of color. Uh, even though demographics have shifted, um, we still make up a large percentage of the city and still do really incredible work for the benefit of the city. So yeah, just looking forward to more arts and culture that will continue to inspire the city and the nation and the globe. Tough tough question here. How do you, maybe it's not, look at me, like just, (laughs) (laughs) but like, how do you, contend with the whole appropriation thing with museums. You know how they say like museums is a form of appropriation. It's like stealing work from Mm -hmm. Africa. Like how do you? Yeah. I mean, I believe very much in repatriation, right? The return of, of objects stolen. Um, And I think that what people have to understand, too, is that there's different kinds of museums. So that's an encyclopedic museum, usually, that has uh, historical items. There's art museums, there's history museums, um, and there's culturally specific, culturally responsive museums, which usually are uh, Black, Latinx, Asian museums that have created their own pedagogy different from those kind of old world museums. Um, And also they move away from a collection centered approach to a community centered approach, which interestingly, a lot of those museums that you mentioned that uh, have problematic objects in their uh, collections are moving to a community centered approach uh, for two reasons. They want to get new audiences, audiences that look like you and me in their spaces, as well as more funding uh, from the city as they get more diverse audiences and such. So, I mean, we can learn a lot from Black and Brown institutions in the community-centered approach that they've been doing for many, many years while these predominantly white institutions were practicing exclusionary practices for, for so many years. So I think that we just have to acknowledge those things. Um and and just, you know, be more equitable. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Um, they So that's like another argument for supporting, 
your work because it's going to be it's going to teach the other ones how to include and get yeah that makes sense there's so many reasons for it i mean we've been arguing about like the mayor of new york defunded the libraries and schools and yet he's funding the police but no one talks about how part of dealing with crime is by funding art Mm -hmm. and schools and libraries I mean, the data shows it. Yep. I don't have the data right now. <laughs> it does show I, it, though. But it does show it. <laughs> yes. It does show um, it. I love this, the Loud and Proud Black Panther Party. So this recently curator, I just followed her, S. Pranza Humphrey. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, is how do you say her name? Esperanza. You said it right. Esperanza. Okay. Esperanza Humphrey observed a psychedelic print with a figure yelling phrases, power to the people and free the New York Panther 21. I love this. It's just, I wish I had seen it. Is It's not still there? Yeah, it's still there. And we actually took you folks on a tour on Friday with Esperanza uh, to see that exhibition. So that was actually, I didn't get to go, but I've heard it. I heard it was really great. And I saw some social media posts about it. So it's still there. I don't know how long, but definitely check it out if you can. Okay, so then how much pushback I would ask like I think of like Ron Ron DeSant Ron DeSantis I get Ron DeSantos and Ron DeSantis confused because they seem like the same person in a way you know the ones from Florida the other ones the the, Uh, Santos the one that's lying about everything yeah so I get those names George George, I get those names like mixed up in my head because they're kind of both Mm -hmm. awful Mm -hmm. but like do you get any pushback do you feel like people are coming at you and going like, or do you get letters or? I get pushback and, you know, some folks saying, you know, they try to like all lives matter. My argument is like everyone, all arts are suffering. And it's just like, yeah, that's true. But we can also acknowledge the fact that black folks specifically and POC in general have been cut out of these opportunities um, and arts and culture have not been funded as much as predominantly white institutions. And, and yes, maybe all predominantly white institutions are not funded the same, but we know that most of this funding goes to white organizations. So yes, I do get some pushback from folks within you know, elected offices and government offices, but I think a part of my work is to continue to showcase the importance of these places and the inequities that they're facing um, and to show the, the actual numbers and to continue to, to have a rallying cry. One thing I know about, you know, government and politics is that once you have a rallying cry and a huge audience, you know, they generally take notice to that. So we just continue to grow our audience and grow our rallying cry and grow our community um, and, and folks pushing back against this inequities that arts and culture sees uh, as, as far as race. So, yeah. So in order to see the inequities, how do you go about, like, do you yeah. go surveys. around? Oh, surveys. surveys. So collecting surveys from arts leaders from these different institutions. What is your budget? What is your funding stream? What is your organization's history? Um you know, specific getting into the nitty gritty of the specificity as much as we can. 
Um, because like I said, we know it anecdotally. It's just like, yeah, you know, black and brown communities don't get funding. You can see it all around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but to collect that data um, was was a lot of work. Um, so I'm grateful for the funding that we, we garnered to do that. But yeah, it was surveys and, you know, looking at data sets and things like that. It was of a lot of organizations. So yeah, wow. a lot of work. Oh, God bless you for this work, by the way. I mean, because there's not a lot of you out here doing it. And I, you know, I, I, you probably could use some help. Yes, for sure. So like I said, you know, whether it be becoming a member or signing on to our letter, you make, you can make a donation um, for sure. And just supporting us or just like attend our events too. Um, like I said, so May 11th, I hope to see you both there. Yes. Um, so that our funders can see because for example, it's being funded by Ford Foundation. We'll have a representative there to come out and see and other, uh, program officers from other foundations will be attending to kind of see what, what, what it's like. We'll be inviting elected officials as well and their staffers. So we hope they also attend to, to see how important this is, but yeah, we're, we're just continuing to push, but yeah, like a campaign, as we talked about earlier, where we're like talking about the impact of arts is something on our radar. Yes. Yeah. And when that happens, we'll also probably reach out to you to like, Hey, do you want to make a short video about how arts and culture in New York has impacted you? Yeah. Or comedians. Comedians are good for fundraisers too. Oh, Yes. I mean, unless they have to be appropriate. Oh no! <laughs> no, we can be appropriate. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah. There, there, there are the ones that can do it. Yes, good, good. <laughs> so my young assistant Ari, she always puts in really good articles. Our fund's student opportunities funding program is helping museums and galleries to access a new generation of talent. I love this article, written uh, by Tim Deacon. It's the museum next. Started in 2018, the Art Fund Student Opportunities helped facilitate new opportunities for students. The Student Opportunities Funding Program was inspired by the Student Art Pass, which is an initiative that provides currently over 28,600 students with enhanced access to arts and culture venues. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's also here in New York, um, um, I'm blanking on the name right now, but essentially CUNY City University of New York has a program where they provide internship opportunities for students in in the arts um, to do paid internships, which is huge. Um, I graduated from CUNY, Brooklyn College. Um, I did several internships, were not paid, but I think providing an opportunity for students now to get access to the arts. And you don't necessarily have to be studying arts and culture. You could be doing accounting or engineering, but also have an eye and interest in the arts and you want to do an internship. And if you get in the program, you can get a paid internship, which I think is really great because I think when people think about arts and culture, they just think about like curators. But just like any other field, we need accountants and engineers and graphic designers and all of those different things to operate. And so I think this is called CUNY Cultural Corps. And I think what it's doing is really showing people just how vast arts and culture is. It's not just like, okay, everyone is like making visual art or sketches or dancing. It's like, no, there's people also doing a lot of arts administration work behind the scenes um, as well. So 
yeah, that'll be, you know, I think a, we'll see in a few years how that'll also shift the way people are um, kind of engaging arts and culture as well because of this program. Wonderful. How important is this work to you? I mean, it's important. I've been doing it for like 10 years now. I'm really passionate about it. I'm also really frustrated about it too. So I would say that, you know, it's really great to continue to propel this work because, you know, more and more people become interested. Uh, You know, people write about Museum Hue in their, you know, college thesis now and such. We get a lot of invitations to speak to different colleges and universities. So to kind of get this work out into the public has been really important. And I hope that the work that we're doing will make the the necessary changes to where we won't have to be doing this work forever. Mm. Um, Because I think that, you know, it should, it it should shift um, generally soon and I can see it shifting. Um, But I think this work is incredibly important to me because arts and culture has always been um, really crucial for me. I went to school right across the street from the Brooklyn Museum and I knew uh, high school and I knew from then that I wanted to be in the arts in, in some form or fashion. And so I just think that this work is important to me on a very surface level and also very in-depth level because I know how important it is to the city that raised me as well. So um, it's pretty crucial that, you know, we we observe um, and preserve um, arts and culture in the city, but yeah, it's going to take more and more people kind of speaking out. Did you? And you, you just said that uh, you do see it improving. I was just going to ask you if, uh, because you've been doing this for fifteen years, and I was wondering if you've seen. Is I mean, I I saw on your uh, mm-hmm. on your website. Did mm-hmm. you see any differences during the Obama years and going into the Trump years and then coming out of that? Did you see the effects of the, because I, I'm in the LGBTQ community and I do see anytime there's a spike in white Mm -hmm. supremacist attitudes, you know, Mm -hmm. there's danger, less funding, people not wanting to work with uh, cert- certain demographics. And, mm-hmm. and you said that you do see it's getting better though right now. I see changes. I mean, I'm also on the steering community committee on the Mosaic Network and Fund, which is through New York Community Trust. And it's a fund pool specifically for uh, black and brown arts and cultural organizations, right? And so we've had the opportunity to work with a lot of private foundations who pulled at least like $5 million for our efforts. And $5 million is a small amount right now, but it's much more than in the past. So I think that there is uh, more and more attention to not just, again, diversity and just like, oh, yeah, you know, Black people can work anywhere they want to now and go to Harvard and go work at Bloomberg now and all these great places. But also it's just like, no, how do we invest in Black communities and Black institutions? And I see that uh, happening very specifically. Um, shout out to um, Mackenzie, um, what's her last name? I can't remember, Bezos' ex-wife. Oh, yeah. But Mackenzie Scott, yeah. where she you know, provided a lot of funding for a lot of uh, black and brown arts organizations here in New York City um, specifically, and also HBCUs as well. Um, So I think people are starting to realize that it's not just about, you know, one person like providing, you know, me with a scholarship to go to school, but also 
you know, providing funds for my community, um, which is, which is a part of helping me to evolve as a person as well. So I see that, I see that changing. Um, I see, I do see that changing. That's great to hear. Oh my goodness. It seems so dark and and gloomy sometimes. Totally. (laughs) It really does. Yeah. So that's really good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So this article, I don't know if this relates to us, but the Whitney is the latest museum to utter the D word. Did you see that article? It's like, so the, the Whitney is dabbling in, this is obviously one of those museums. So it's kind of doesn't relate to us, but it's de accessioning the institutional art. I don't know what, the, what does that mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> That's so, like selling off yeah, stuff exactly. so you can get more money. So deaccessioning uh, artwork usually uh, is done to help with the caring of the works that you do have currently in your collection and you're able to do the accession because you have a lot of similar works from the same artists. Um, or one thing that was done during the pandemic, someone wanted to deaccession so that they could get more funding for their security guards and their front house staff and things like that. So deaccessioning happens in different ways. It's usually overseen by the board of the institution as well as um, uh, AMD, which is Association of Museum Directors. They kind of, um, mm-hmm. I think about that critically, but deaccessioning is a huge part of the industry right now um, because folks need funding, like I said, for, for the reasons um, that I mentioned, but also to make more room for like more black and brown um, artists, um, and such. So people are also seeing that to be problematic as well, which I get, um, because I want to see, you know, more brown, black and brown institutions gain more black and brown, um, artists in their collection. But I know how important it is to have, uh, artists work within these big name institutions as well, how it significantly increases the value of their artwork. You have been seriously, like an amazing guest to have. I mean, I think it's just like you said, such a critical time for history in America, for art in America, the uses of it. And so I really appreciate you for taking your time to come here today. I Um, appreciate that. And I appreciate you both too as hosts, I should say too. You have both have been really wonderful too. I felt really comfortable, which is important. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're here. Oh, okay. So no, yeah, go first. <laughs> All right. So uh, you can find me everywhere. Uh, we have a lot of shows coming up here in New York and some in Stanford and all sorts of places. You can find me at noyecomedy.com. That's N-O-N-Y-E comedy.com. And with friends like us, you don't have to de-accession your brain. <laughs> I, did I use, is that the definition? <laughs> Um, that was perfect. <laughs> no, that, that didn't work. That didn't work, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, your turn. Okay, so uh, you can find me on Museum Hue, um, at Museum Hue on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also on my own handle, Seth A. Cunningham, again, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So thank you again for having me. With friends like us, we can love on arts and culture all throughout New York City. Oh, yes! Thank you. (laughs) Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com for all my dates. I do have a show coming up at the Fabric 
Pussycat Bar, where you will see me working on new material. And with friends like us, you will learn how to fund museums that are focused on diversity. Like, yes. Check, Check us, us out. out.